Like Ryan mentioned at the beginning, we don't meet in a church building, we meet in a movie theater. So I hope you weren't here last weekend, um, unless it was for watching a movie. I hope you were with us at the, uh, the baptism party that we had. It was on Saturday night. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking about it. So at that baptism party, we got to hear three members of our congregation, Paulette, uh, Tara, Jocelyn, um, tell how God has worked in their life. And not only tell how God has worked in their life, but uh, we got to witness, we got to celebrate them uh, publicly dedicating themselves in baptism and obedience to King Jesus. So give them a round of applause uh, for that. Yeah. Thank you for being faithful to King Jesus. Um, but this morning we're back here in the theater to continue our series on uh, the book of Micah, entitled Only... Only God can, can judge me. Kind of a catchy, catchy little tag thing there. Um, I'll just ask for God's help to illuminate the text as we read it. Lord, would you, would you use these words to, to reach right into the inmost part of ourselves, expose who we are, bring life to us. In Jesus' name. Um, so when, when Dwight started this uh, series two weeks ago, he started with chapter one. I'll be continuing uh, with chapter two. Micah, like Dwight had mentioned, was uh, lived in about the 700s before uh, Christ in the, the southern part of the land of Israel. And it was, it was during a time, or right before, or right after a time, in which the Assyrians were invading from the north. Um, and so there's this Assyrian king named King Sennacherib. So I thought I'd put up a picture uh, for us of him. There he is. He looks, he looks like he could be a nice guy, but he wasn't at all. Um, this is an Assyrian relief of the sage of Lashish. It's kind of hard to see that. I pulled this uh, off, off the internet. Um, it's a city that if you have your Bibles uh, with you uh, or if you have the scripture journals we were selling, um, it's in chapter 1 and verse 13. You can see that city uh, mentioned in it. It's, the caption says it's the, the, dis, the filleting alive, impaling, and the importing of a Judean family by camel to Assyria. Um, and so uh, the prophet Micah and the other minor prophets which wrote around him, they're all kind of in the same part of the, at the end of the New Testament there. Uh, these books... Uh, are warnings of coming judgment like this and calls to repentance. And then in it, you have little messages sprinkled um, in of, of, of hope, uh, of, of the future, of a future hope. And this can make us ask the question, well, future, were these, were these prophets, prophets like Micah, were they sort of these, you know, psychic uh, fortune tellers? Well, no. But there is a yes in that the sense that they work in communication with God. So sometimes they did have a foreknowledge of what was taking place. But more importantly, more prim primarily in your mind, you should think of prophets as, as people who had encountered the presence of God, encountered a God who, who cared, a God who, um, who speaks, who commissions the prophets to speak on his behalf, to, to call them back to the partnership that God had made with his people. A covenant, they called it. It was a partnership made when God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought them into a new land, a land in which they were to live in generosity and justice before God and before their neighbor. But, 
But so often they failed at that. And so hence the prophets. Their judgment calls to repentance, promises of hope. And so you see that kind of interplay between judgment and hope, although in this book primarily judgment. And so you can divide the book, before we get into it, just from a, a big scale, you can divide the book into three main sections, three hears. In chapter 1 and verse 2, you, you see, um, hear you peoples, all of you. And so this is, this is the first of God's judgment. It's a judgment against all people. Then in chapter 3 and 1, hear you heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. This is a judgment against the leaders. And then finally in 6 and 1, you have the court case. It's God vs. Israel. And so the question throughout the book is, will Israel hear? Where they listen to, this, to these um, calls to repentance. Where they hear of the injustice that is taking place in their land. Especially in this book, injustice that stems from greed. What is greed? Maybe you need an example. I needed uh, an example, and I couldn't think of an example for a while. And I mentioned this as I was talking to my brother. And it took him no time to come up with an example of, of my own greed in my life growing up. So here we go. I was 11, I think, and he was 13. And uh, my brother Alan wanted to make some money uh, shoveling snow, or at least he decided to make money through shoveling snow. So he went across the street to the neighbor across the road and had a chat, and they made up a contract. And in the contract, he would you know, go f the whole winter at a fixed rate. Didn't ha matter how much it snowed. Um, but there was one thing in particular, and that was that the neighbor, he, he had to go to work really early, so it had to be shoveled before 6.30 in the morning. Now, one or two snowfalls later, Alan decided he didn't want to wake up that early anymore. And so he decided to subcontract the snow shoveling to his little brother, to me. And so I took it, but in front of the whole family at the dinner table, I complained that, oh, Alan had made so much money off of my back and it only snowed like this little bit, and you know he's exploiting me, and so on. But I had taken the contract. And then some time went by, about a month, it was January now, and it honestly snowed one time, like two inches. Went out, cleared it, no big deal. And Alan comes back to me, because he wanted to buy snowboard boots, and this time I knew he was desperate. And so I sold it back to him, but only at a fraction of the original contract. And this time in front of the family at the dinner table, I bragged about, oh man, I made $80 off of one time shoveling snow. <laughs> now my dad, the first time, as little brother, he had advocated for me. The second time, he saw right through it. He saw my greed. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> I, you know, I, I was upset, right, when Alan was making money off of the work I did, but then I bragged, right, when, um, when I was able to kind of take advantage of him, when I was disadvantaging my brother for myself. And, and this is just what greed is. It comes in all sorts of shapes uh, and sizes. And you could define greed as a, a disordered or wrong or strong wrong desire for something. So this could be money or possessions or... Um, a position, a, a relationship. Could be like wanting just the latest phone. Uh, not because you need one, but just, just because it's, you know, it's bigger, it's faster, it's stronger, it's more efficient, or it's comfortable. Um, 
This, this can be a good thing that you're after or a bad thing that you're after. The point is, though, that you want it. You want it really bad, and you want it now, and you don't want to be questioned about whether it's actually necessary or you need it or not. Um, speaking of greed, I remember listening to the well-known pastor in New York City, Tim Keller. He was, he was recalling how he gave a series of lectures on the seven uh, deadly uh, sins, And he was remarking that of all the deadly sins, things like pride and lust and so on, the lecture on greed was the least attended one. Everything else about them was pretty much the same. I mean, same time, same place, part of the week. But just the, the topic of greed just really didn't seem to get people out. People just didn't come out to hear. And he reasoned, well, it must be either that they don't think this is that big a deal, like it's just not that important. It's not important, like lust and pride and these other things and so on. It's no big deal. Or, or that they didn't want to be confronted by it. You know, I don't want the church to tell me why my saving or why my investing motives are wrong. I don't want Jesus to get too involved in the setting of my goals. And so if, if you're either of these things, you don't think the topic is that big a deal, or you don't want to be confronted by it, our text today is for you. That greed indeed is a big deal. That'll be my first point. We'll see this from verse one to five, that greed is heavy. It matters, it's important. We'll also see that greed is, second point, greed is dumb. Um, <laughs> that even if you can't be bothered to care about it, well, that's actually precisely probably because you've succumbed to its effects that it has sort of blocked your ears. It's made you unwilling to listen. But all is not lost because we'll see, following judgment, there is always hope that greed can be defeated. So greed is heavy, it's dumb, and it can be defeated. So first, greed is heavy. That's, we see this from verse one to five. So let's get into it. Chapter two and verse one. If you have your Bibles, turn to it uh, with me. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. At the beginning of this verse, you can see how the evil is, it's calculated, it's, it's premeditated. It's something that takes place in the dreams of night. And I might ask you, when you're lying awake at night, what sort of dreams do you have? What keeps you awake at night? I think most of us, if you're like me, you end your day processing the things that have just happened. You might have anxiety about something that has taken place. You might have anxiety about something that is going to take place. But it's in these moments that we, our minds and our hearts, they look for things to assure us. They look for things that we can latch onto and take comfort in. Right? So maybe even a better question to ask is, what does your mind go to for comfort in order so that you can fall asleep? What does your mind meditate on? See, if you're anxious, if you're anxious about your living situation, you might be sort of fantasizing about that bigger house that you could buy, or maybe moving out of the city into the country. Or if you're anxious about your car, if you're worried about your car, maybe it's not gonna start the next day, right? You might be fantasizing about the neighbor's car that he brought home. Man, that was a really nice car. Did you see the lift on his, his Jeep? It's sweet. <laughs> or if you're lonely, you might be thinking about 
getting into a relationship. Or if you're in a relationship and it's not going well, maybe you're thinking, well, what about the next relationship that I could get into? See, all of these things that we dream about, the things that our minds meditate on, they end up being the things that feed our souls. And so what do you dream about? Psalm 1 says that blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now when God's word over us and God's word to us is our comfort, our joy, and our security, it is the only thing that will sustain our souls. Here's my point. Is that what the text is saying? Is that that greed doesn't start at that point of where you start accumulating things. It doesn't even start at that point where you start pursuing things. It actually starts quite a bit earlier than that. It's sourced in what we meditate on. It's sourced in what we dream on, on what we, we desire. That means, let's say, you're a student in the room. Right? You might be thinking, or you're a person who doesn't have a lot of wealth. You may be thinking, well, I don't have a lot of wealth, so I can't be a greedy person. Well, greed isn't the same thing as wealth. We tend to conflate those things in our mind. I'll probably even be coming back to this idea again today. But you can be a greedy poor person, or you can be a very generous rich person, which is why I take it back to this question of desire. I take it back to this question of dreams and motivations. But you might have a second objection. Jordan, all this talk about greed, it seems to be coming up against it, couldn't this undermine positive things like growth and progress and innovation? And so the question could be raised, is it wrong to have goals? Is it wrong to have ambitions? Well, no, no. Remember that when I defined greed, I defined it as disordered or strong wrong desire. And the word disordered is the key word here. See, it's not wrong to have dreams and ambitions. But the question is, are they aligned? Are they ordered with God's purposes and intentions for your life? If you think back to the story that I just gave earlier, see, it wasn't wrong for me to want to make money, to want to, to profit from being paid, you know, for snow shoveling. But it was to do so at the blatant disadvantage of my brother. See, I wasn't aligned with what we know to be how God wants us to align. With Jesus, he said it was the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with your whole heart and soul and mind and then to love your neighbor as you love yourself. See, I wasn't aligning to that. I wasn't loving my brother as much as I was lining my pockets. And so it doesn't matter what your goal is. It could be, you know, let's say your goal is I want to get, you know, 1,000 more subscribers for my YouTube channel or I want to finish grad school, or I want to be the best chef in Montreal, right? All of these sorts of goals, I'll always be taking it back. The biblical question would be always to take it back to the question, why do you want that goal? Why do you want that goal? Do you want that goal in order so that you can be noticed? Do you want that goal in order so that you can have security, so that you can have comfort? Do you want that goal and so that your life just feels justified? The question is, does the motivation behind it align with what God has 
for you? Does it, does it align with what God has for you in order that it causes you to actually love God better and in turn love your neighbor better? Or is it a distraction? Does it displace those things? This is what greed can do. It can distract and displace God out, right out of our lives. Actually, Paul speaks about this to somebody, the Colossian church in the Bible. You see this in Colossians 3 and verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and for us, greed. Which is, he says, idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, a lot of Christians will read this, uh, and they'll be pretty surprised. It's like, well, I get kind of like the immorality piece, but greed as idolatry? And if they were to keep reading, they might even become more surprised. Greed as a grounds for, for church discipline? Why does God make such a big deal out of this? Well, let me answer this. Let me try and answer this in a way that I think both the Christian and the non-Christian will be able to understand. Are you fed up with the injustice in this world? There's injustice in this chapter. There's injustice in this world. Are you fed up with that injustice? Are you fed up with the theft and the lies and the exploitation and the manipulation that you see and want to get to the bottom of it? Well, what the Bible tells us is that what is at root, that what is at bottom, that injustice actually stems from disordered dreams. And greed is actually just that. It is disordered desires. And so it's such a big deal because it is just that. God has been outweighed and displaced on our hearts. And so if you want to deal with the injustice in the world, you're going to need to deal with that, what's at root of it. If you want to deal with the injustice in the world, you're going to have to deal with what's the root of it. And so that means you're going to have to deal with greed. And in turn, you're going to have to deal with idolatry. Idolatry, which is the displacement of God, which is that false worship that takes place on our hearts. And so you can see where we're going with this. The dreams and the goals, and they're not wrong, but you need to be aware that they can become disordered. We need to place them before God's feet. Let's keep reading. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. And so what did they do? This is verse two. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. The dreams that we saw at night are now being carried out in the morning, the sorts of things you'd only expect, you know, to be covered out, carried out, evil, you know, expected to be carried out under the cover of darkness. It's being carried out blatantly in broad daylight because it says it's in the power of their hands. See, it seems that what happened was for the people of Israel that injustice had actually been legalized. It had been made the law of the land, that what had that, that what was right in the eyes of God and his moral law had actually been made wrong in the law of the land. And what was wrong in God's moral law had been made right in the law of the land. See, God had told Israel that the land that they inherited 
was always to stay in the family. It could never be taken it could, or sold. It could only be leased. But here you see that that land that was never to be taken or sold was actually being, it was being coveted. And the system was being worked in such a way that it was being taken from those people who had less means or little means or little power. And this is just nothing but pure theft. And so you can see that the fruit of greed ends up in theft. And so this is why God's judgment is being brought against the people of Israel. They've become land monopolizers. And see, so, so we can see here, the point was that greed is heavy, right? That, that greed, it's rooted deeper than we think, but it's also heavier because God's response to it is greater than we might expect. And so what does God do? He reverses their fortunes. This is in verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. Verse 4, in that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. And so God reverses their fortunes. In verse 1, you see that the oppressor devises wickedness. And in verse 3, you see, you see against them the Lord devises disaster. That the same oppressor who steals the land and house is now in verse 4, going to moan bitterly, it says, when the same thing happens to them. See, it's interesting how when they do it to other people, and they can even dream about it and calculate it all, Right? And they don't even think until, until it happens to them, right? Then they see the reality of it. Oh, we are utterly ruined, they say. See, covetousness, despite all of their calculations, have made them completely blind to their neighbor, the good of their neighbor, loving their neighbor, completely blind to it. So God reverses, reverses their fortunes, and he reverses their power. They cannot, it says, verse 3, remove their necks. That the power that they had once used to carry out this injustice is now powerless. They're up to their necks in the judgment of God. And so here's what you need to hear. That the power of oppression you might face is never greater than the power of God. The power of oppression you might face is never greater than God's power. See, if you're being oppressed, if you're up against injustice, it can seem absolutely futile. Some of you will know that feeling very well. But if you're here and experiencing injustice, you can rest assured that it is nothing, it is nothing against the power of God. That against the power of God, it becomes futile. That we might not understand God's purposes, we might not understand God's timing, but you can rest assured that he will set things right. And this is exactly, in a sense, what the book of Micah is all about. So God reverses their fortunes, he reverses their power, and finally their pride. At the end of verse 3, it says, to an, or 4, he says, to an apostate, he allots our fields, therefore they, they will have none to cast the line by lot. What is casting the line by lot? This is just, it's surveying, right? It's a way of knowing who owned this 
and that. And what God is saying that all of their divisions, all of their title deeds, their land claims, their houses, their fields, all of it now, with this incoming invasion, it was all lost. None of it mattered anymore. It had all been temporary. And simply put, all that calculating they did, all that dreaming they did late at night in bed to execute in the day in the oppression, all of the dreaming they did, it was too small. It was fickle, right? They dreamed of temporary things, things that couldn't last. They thought those things would give them security and hope and comfort and identity and meaning, and it was all taken away. And on the other hand, God would offer them something that could not be taken away. God would offer them something that couldn't be taken away. Something that wasn't temporary. He would offer them himself. Have you found that yet? Do you know him? Our greed is serious, isn't it? It's a heavy matter. It's a big deal. And it has dulled our senses. You saw how it dulled the senses to their neighbors. It clouds them from hearing the voice of God. This is our second point, that greed is dumb. You see this from verse 6 through to 11. Verse 6, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Overtake us. Message, little, little, little. Yeah. Reset the, uh, the vocals here. <laughs> Micah's message of judgment, it's a tongue twister. Micah's message of judgment is not being well received, is it? Right? Don't preach this. Everything's going to be fine, Micah. Don't worry about this. Disgrace will not overtake us. And it goes on, verse 7. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? You can just imagine the people of God coming to Micah. If God judges like this, oh man, this isn't our problem. This is God's problem. There's something wrong with him. There's not something wrong with us. Anyway, God wouldn't do this. Micah, don't you remember the verses? God, it says he's patient. He's slow to anger, abounding in mercy. Micah, look at this verse, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Therefore, no, the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Micah, don't you see? This is the steadfast love of God. His patience, it says here, a thousand generations. This is what we believe. Come on. And Micah would point to the very next verse, Deuteronomy 7.10, and repays to their faces those who hate him. By destroying them, he will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him his face. See, that's not popular. But the judgment of God is coming against sin, and it's coming against greed, and it's coming against everything else. See, it's so much easier to pick and choose and sit on the scriptures that we like, right? The scriptures that we agree with, and just pass and leave aside the rest. Paul talks about this as a similar problem in 2 Timothy 4, 3, he says, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Having itching ears. I think uh, that the Australian Mark Sayers, he's a thinker, is right. I think he's right in saying that the most prevalent problem among Christians today, especially my generation and younger 
is that we have a, a DIY attitude towards faith. That we have a DIY attitude towards faith. That we, we, we pick and we choose. We take the bits of Christian doctrine and Christian living that we like and we just sort of leave aside the rest, the parts that we don't like. We like the parts about compassion and maybe the justice of God and how Jesus works against social injustice. But oh, then those, those parts about greed and judgment and repentance and discipleship and oh, the Christian sexual ethic, oh, leave that aside. I don't, I don't need that, I don't want that, we're just fine, that part's not for me. And what you need to understand is that the DIY approach to faith works like an acid on it. It will destroy it because you're not actually getting the real Jesus. You have only gotten a Hallmark version of him. You might have gotten a version that allows you to fit in among your peers. You might have gotten a version that allows you to maintain your lifestyle, a version that allows you to carry on in your greed-ridden goals. But know that it is Jesus who you're, it's not Jesus who you're worshiping, it is your dreams who you're worshiping. Your dreams have become more real to, to you than Jesus himself. This is, the, this is what a DIY version of faith is, and it's utter, utter devastation to your Christian life. It is a lie. It is an absolute lie. Verse 11, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he should be a preacher for this people. See, this is the power of greed, that over the voice of God, we accept wind and lies. It has this self-deceptive nature. Where we're, 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 it's self-deceptive in that when we're in it, we don't even see it. It's not like, greed is not like other sins like adultery. You're not just going to get caught in adultery and be like, oh, I didn't know what was going on. Greed is one of those things you just, you can't see. You can't see it so often when it is happening, when you're stuck in it. And this is maybe why Jesus spoke about money and greed so often, because our ears are dumb, right? We make excuses for ourselves. We try and eek and wiggle and worm and move the goalposts and make excuses, I'll give you an example. Let's say, let's say you know somebody who has a really nice house. It's a nice house, you know? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a house in Westmount. Maybe it's somewhere like up the hill in Westmount. It has seven, you don't even know, maybe it has seven or eight bedrooms. You've lost track. And they have a few cars, you know? And they're nice cars. One of them's like a Maserati, like a really nice car. It's so nice, you know that they would never let anybody touch it, never let you know, a friend drive that car. Now let's say you knew that person was a Christian. And you would probably say, oh, it's okay, it's, it's a wealthy Christian. You know, I don't know about the Maserati piece, but you know, maybe they worked hard for it. Maybe, maybe cars are a hobby for them. They really like nice cars. And it's their money anyway, right? Now. Let's say I told you not only is this person a Christian, but this person is your Christian pastor. Would that change anything for you? Does that change anything in your mind? Why is that? Well, because I've, I've found out, this comes kind of a surprise to me, but I should have known that pastors kind of live their lives in a bit of a fishbowl, <laughs> right? They're seen as an example of what Christian living looks like, of stewarding their resources well. And there's, there, there's something 
right to that, right? It's right that when someone isn't giving generously, when your pastor isn't giving generously, it's right to feel injustice about that. I, I should mention here, it's not wrong uh, for Christians to have you know, nicer, bigger houses, I should say, than they need when they intend to use the space that they don't need in order to meet the needs of the people around them. But my point here is this, that within the Christian church, right, you're looking in on those people who set an example, right? You're, you're looking in, you're looking at the pastor's lives as maybe as a fishbowl, but there's only so many pastors kicking around in our churches, right? Many non-Christians will never meet those few pastors who are kicking around in their churches. The only Christian they'll meet, the only example of Christian living in generosity they'll ever see is you. And so how you're living your life is an example of Christian generosity, overflowing with the goodness and the grace of Jesus. This is what Jesus calls us to. He calls all of us, he says, to an abundant life, an abundant life, not of possessions, it might be possessions in order so we can stew them for the, steward them for the good of others, for the good of all people. He calls us to an abundant life, an abundant life of eternal riches in him. And so the point of this example is you need to be extremely critical of shifting the goalposts, right? Of making excuses, of being blinded to the own, your own greed. Jesus said, watch out, be on guard, against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus calls us to take this guarded, proactive approach. And yet, in our materialistic culture, like I've mentioned, it's so easy to find comfort and meaning and security and hope and just an abundance of junk and stuff. And it can happen not just in the junk and the stuff side, right? It can also, yes, it can be hoarding for security, but can also be, it can be the lavish spending and also be a sort of hoarding for security in which you, it looks like you have nothing, but you're actually hoarding in other ways. And if we're honest, we've probably all uh, done this to some degree. And so, so far in this message you've been listening, it's probably been getting pretty bleak. If this is your first time at a Christian gathering, you might think, man, this is a very pessimistic view of the world. Greed and injustice and sin, and this is a huge text about God's judgment. My goodness, this faith, this faith requires so much of you. Jesus, Jesus, he doesn't let you get away with a DIY version of faith. He doesn't let you just line your pockets, pursue disordered dreams, no. And so maybe even as a Christian, you're wondering, how could Jesus ever expect so much of us? But here's the thing. Yes, Jesus calls every Christian to give more than we think. But he offers us so much more than we expect. <laughs> yes, Jesus calls every Christian to give more than we think. But he offers us so much more than we expect. And this brings us to our third and final point, that greed is and can be defeated in our lives. This is in verse 12 and 13. Verse 12, I will surely assemble you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in a pasture, a noisy multitude of men. 
He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. A sudden shift from judgment to hope for a remnant who will turn and repent. We find in this image, in this text, the image of a shepherd who gathers his people together, who breaks open a way for them to go, and as king leads them out. And this we find as Christians is a prophecy of Jesus. That 700 years later, a man would walk onto this world claiming to be God. And he would say, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. You see, Jesus was the shepherd who when you and I were coming under the just judgment of God for our greed, for our idolatry, for our itching, unhearing ears, said, I will take their judgment. You see, Jesus was the shepherd who for the sake of the sheep went and bore, went and took that just judgment of God so it did not have to fall on you. He did it in order to spare us, to save us from its penalty, from the penalty that we justly deserved from sin. And so Jesus, remember I was lining my pockets, he went to the cross, his pockets turned inside out. And on the cross he was crucified. The last thing he had, his garment was torn from him, gambled off by soldiers, and he died an utterly poor man. And it's on the cross that he reveals the results of our greed. The result of our greed is death. And so will you see what he did for you? Will you hear him cry out for you on that cross? He says, Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. Let the cross open your eyes to the reality of sin. That greed truly is idolatry. That it is truly a problem that needs to be repented of. God will not be slack concerning his promises. He is unleashing his fury against the greed in our lives. I will not be slack on this. This is the true judgment of God that comes from his word. But it does not end there. The cross is not the end. Jesus did not stay dead. He was raised to life again so you can have freedom from it. It is done. It has been taken by Jesus on the cross. He has freed you. All that, that inclination you have to latch yourself on to this and that stuff and that material possession and find comfort and find hope and meaning and satisfaction. It's temporary. It's done. Jesus has been raised to life eternal, and that's what matters. And so put your faith, put your hope, peace, whatever, however you want to say it, put your trust in him. Because that is what's going to free your soul. There is nothing else. You will, you will be pierced through, it says, by a multitude of sorrows. Your life will just be tragic. But Jesus can free you from that. He can make you overflow with his generosity. He can be the meaning of your life, the security of your heart, the hope of your soul. Our greed, our sin has been defeated. Jesus offers us forgiveness. He says that he, he, may, he has broken through. He has breached the gate, it says in that verse. How did he breach the gate? That was his resurrection, that he has made a way so we can be restored. When our greed cut us off from communion with God, 
Jesus made a way. He broke through so that we could have, again, communion and right relationship with God. Freedom has come. Yes, greed is heavy, but its shackles have been loosed. Its weight has been removed by Jesus on the cross who bore it for you. And that is a message of freedom that you, my friend, need to hear. Remember when I said all the injustice in the world was driven by greed. Now, you see, when its root has been diagnosed, it can be dealt with. You can actually change. There is actually a solution for what is going on in our world. <laughs> and see, don't, <laughs> I can't just tell you stop being greedy. That's not gonna work. You can't just hear everything and say, okay, I'm gonna stop being greedy. You need to turn to Jesus. You need to see his life, what he has done for you, as a greater treasure in your life. You need to fix your attention. You need to allow him to capture you more than whatever else was capturing your heart. His allure has to be greater in your life. And until that is the case, nothing is going to change with you. He can set you free. And so I want to apply this to the three ways that Jesus is prophetically revealed in this chapter. That Jesus is shepherd, he is king, and he is the breaker. Allow Jesus to be the comfort of your soul. As shepherd, right, that would be the one who goes and, you know, protects the sheep from wolves coming in. The one who provides for the sheep, makes sure they're in the green pastures, that there's food for their souls. Allow him to be the food for your soul. Don't allow these other things to be food for your soul. Don't allow these other things to be what you set your hope on, what you go to for your security, your 401k. No. No. This is what it means for Jesus to be your shepherd. Don't settle for anything less than him. His presence is enough. He longs to bring you into his presence. Allow Jesus to be the shepherd of your soul. Verse 10 says, arise and go, for this is no place of rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. Our materialistic culture is no place of rest. Jesus will one day come again and in renewing the earth, make this place a place of grievous destruction. So don't get comfortable here. No, arise and go, Jesus calls us, to go and make disciples. To, to show them how you have been set free from the alluring, capturing hole of greed on your life. It's possible, as shepherd, spend time in his presence. And Jesus is king. Jesus as king means that he's sovereign. He's coming to execute his will. He is Lord of this earth. Let him recast your dreams as Lord of the earth. If he's really Lord of your life, let him be Lord. He owns you. Let him recast your dreams. Practically, if you struggle with greed, generosity and sharing can begin to break that in your heart. How do generosity and sharing help fight greed? Well, because Jesus is Lord, because Jesus is king, the earth is his, everything in it. And so the repeated practice of letting go of things, it, it starts to train our hearts. It creates a habit or a rhythm in our hearts. 
And so that we learn, because we don't have them anymore, because we've given them away, not to trust in them anymore. It helps to rehearse to our hearts the great truth that these things are temporary, they won't last. But he always will. And so give more than you want to. Jesus calls us to, to sacrificial giving. We're so prone to want to hold onto things, right? To only give out of our excess. But Jesus, he didn't give out of his excess, right? He gave to the point, like I explained to you, gave to the point of the cross. He gave to the point hurt. And his giving to the point of hurt was his exponential, inexhaustible riches being poured out on you. And so if you say that is something that you have received in your life, that you've received the grace of Jesus, how can you not in turn give it? How can you not overflow with joy and give it, give, being given the opportunity? Some come, someone comes to you and says, man, would you be able to help me with this? Share some of your time in this. Hey, I heard you have this talent. I don't know how to do this. Would you be able to help me with this particular thing that you're an expert at? Hey, there's this project that the church needs money for. Would you be able to help financially supply in this way? If your default response is, you don't know the joy of Jesus. You have never encountered his grace in that way. So allow the grace of Jesus to not just, you give out of skimming off the top of the excess. Jesus didn't give off the excess. He gave it all. Allow it to be what we call sacrificial giving. It's a giving that hurts because it's helping train your heart in that new reality, the reality of the kingdom of God. It helps you step into that new reality that is truly, honestly, more blessed to give than to receive. And what you'll find as you do this, as you practice generosity, as you practice sharing, that the idolatry in your heart will begin to be broken, that the, the displacement that has occurred will again to be reversed, and that you will begin to truly love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind. And then in turn, your neighbor, right? Loving God vertically has this effect where you begin to love your neighbors horizontally. And so you, you love your neighbor. You want what's best for them. You don't just want their stuff, right? And so all of this is because Jesus is king. He's shepherd, he's king, and finally he's the way breaker. I love how the NASB reads. It's a, it's a more word-for-word -word translation than what we read this morning in the ESV. He says, the breaker goes up before them. The breaker goes up before them. Jesus is the wave breaker. Do you need a breakthrough in your life? Has this made it apparent that something is happening that is not right, that needs to be dislodged? Jesus is the breaker for your breakthrough. He is the one that you need to call on right now. Do not neglect to call on him. If you struggle with greed, if you struggle with guilt, knowing the way that greed has influenced you to manipulate and exploit your relationships with others. If you struggle with trust, knowing that God is real, that he is good enough to let go of these things in order to take hold of him. All of those are areas of breakthrough. And so if this is the case for you, I want you to come down here. I'm gonna move into a time of prayer and I'm gonna be praying for those things. Um, but before I do that, I would invite the band up. Um, 
I'm gonna be praying a prayer for spiritual breakthrough. I'm gonna read a quote that someone named Charles Stanley uh, did long ago about how Jesus is the breaker. He wrote this, in so much as Jesus has gone up before us, things remain not as they would have been had he never passed that way. He has conquered every foe that obstructed the way. Cheer up now, thou faint-hearted warrior. Not only has Christ traveled the road, he has slain our enemies. Do you dread sin? He has nailed it to the cross. Do you fear death? He has been the death of death. Are you afraid of hell? He has barred it from coming on any of his children. Whatever foes, whatever power may be for the Christian, they are all overcome. No weapon that's formed against you will prosper. You see, it is true. We shall engage in combat, but your fight shall be with a vanquished foe. His head is broken. He may attempt to injure you, but his strength will not be sufficient. Your victory shall be easy. Your treasure shall be beyond all count. I want to invite you down as I pray now to a prayer of breakthrough. And we'll move into a time of response. Father God, I thank you that you are here in this place. I thank you that you're the one who brings breakthrough. That there is no weapon that's formed against us shall prosper. That you are the one who enables us to love and to trust you. So spirit of the living God, would you come down and touch any person here who is struggling, struggling, struggling to trust you. Who knows that their heart has been captured by the allure of stuff. Who's been captured by the allure of the next promotion. Who's been captured by the allure of moving ahead in their career. Who's been captured by the allure of success. Jesus, would you break them? Would you pour out your spirit in them now in Jesus' name? And Father, I pray for those, Lord, whose hearts have been captured by greed in this room. Who haven't stood. Lord, you know who they are. You have exposed their sin by your spirit. And now I pray, Lord, that they would turn to you, that they would not delay in repenting, that they would see the reality of your justice and even more so the reality of your forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, that you bring forgiveness, that you bring abundant life, that your word is prosperity to us, and that you have made a way, that breakthrough is possible in the name of Jesus. And it's that breakthrough that we claim in our lives. Yes, Jesus, will you come through? Thank you for saving us from the power of sin, death, and hell. We love you. In Jesus' name.